Now, can we turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, where we're continuing our study, uh, which has been entitled A Better Country, because really the whole theme of Hebrews is pointing to Jesus Christ as being better than anything, better than what's gone before, better than what the Jewish Christians were tempted to go back and uh, to experience again, which was uh, kind of a mixture of Christianity and and, uh, Judaism. And so he's wanting to highlight throughout this letter the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that is a message I don't think that ever gets out of date or becomes insignificant. And so he continues to build up this picture. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus being superior to the angelic beings, and we saw uh, why that was important. And he continues, in a sense, in that theme and makes it practical as well for us. So I want to look at a couple of things. I want to look, first of all, at God's self-awareness, okay? That might be a very obvious thing to say, is God's Word. He's going going to be self-aware. But he speaks about himself here. He's telling us things about himself that we uh, will benefit from knowing or or at least being reminded of in our lives. And then I want to say uh, a little bit about God's us-awareness. So there's God's self-awareness, but he speaks about himself. And that is important because he then takes that and says, well, I know about you as well. I know there's an us-awareness, us-awareness you awareness in terms of God looking at us. And uh, he wants to uh, challenge us about where we are spiritually uh, in the light of what we learn about him in this passage. I want to say several things then about God's self-awareness as we travel, I hope, quickly uh, through this chapter, which has got masses and masses of information and uh, truth and theology in it. But in verses 3 and 4, Jesus, uh, God says really that he himself is the great witness to salvation, to redemption. And the whole Bible is about Jesus and about his redemption uh, of people, of our our need for rescue. Okay, So he he says that he's the great witness to that. He says this salvation, which was uh, first announced by the Lord and confirmed by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and and various miracles. So Jesus and God is much more than just the one who testifies, who speaks about salvation, but he does that also. Uh, The Lord Jesus announced salvation, and God testified to it in these miraculous ways, and that's very significant. Um, He is, in in other words, it's another reminder, as we had at the very beginning, that salvation is God's, it's from God. It's God's idea. It's God's announcement. God testifies to it. It's not that we've kind of come together and jumbled uh, for a few hours or a few days or a few generations. To, what would be the best way to, to do salvation? It's not like that. It's not our attempt to reach up to God. It's not our best thinking. It's God's declaration down to us, as it were. His announcement, his testifying to what he is doing is significant and real and important with signs and miracles and wonders to back up what he is doing. And the central pillar to this salvation that he's speaking about, you may argue in in different ways what it is, but in verses 14 and 15, I'm going to jump around a little bit today, so you please try and keep with me. Uh, The central pillar of this salvation is he is the destroyer of death. 
Now immediately, everyone's got to be interested in that, haven't they? Because we're all going to die. I'm, I'm going to become morbid in this series, I can tell. I spoke about death quite a lot last week, and I'm going to speak about it again. Okay, we are all going to die. And the central pillar of what Jesus has come to do is that in verse 14, by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So it's massive. The gospel is big because it deals with this hugely unpopular and unspoken reality in all of our lives. And what he's saying is, and I know we know this, but we need reminded of it really sometimes, is that death has a spiritual genesis. You know, everywhere we are today will tell us that death is just a natural occurrence. It just happens. We live, we are young, we become middle-aged, we grow old if we get that far, and then we die. And it's just, that's life. That's life, people say. But we're reminded here, and clearly through Scripture, that death is not simply a natural thing. It is not just part of living. It has a spiritual genesis that has an evil genesis in uh, satanic slavery. Uh, It is a dark reality. It is the just judgment of God where sinners are handed over uh, to the powers of darkness. It's a separation, you see, because of our sin, from the author of life. God is the author of life, and death is that separation from him that sin has brought into humanity's experience. Is there, any, is there anyone on YouTube that claims they'll not die anywhere in the world? Because we have access to everyone in the world today through internet, really, don't we? Is, are there people that would claim, oh, death doesn't, appeal, doesn't apply to me? It's, it's not my experience. Don't think so. We'll find it as a universal experience. And we, I think there's times we recoil from that idea of death being a result of our sin and a spiritual judgment and an enslavement because we have our own self-centered view of justice that sometimes recoils from the idea of God having that, that right. And yet God reveals himself as also perfectly good and perfectly holy, and supreme, and sovereign, as we saw last week, and massive, and a God of love. And so, Hebrews is wanting to take us to the place where we are not asking God to be realigned to our sense of justice, and right, and wrong, and redemption, but that we seek, as we understand Him in our lives, to be realigned to God, because He is worth it. And because he is big, that's the whole point of Hebrews, is that Jesus Christ is big. He's worthy of our worship. You will not worship Jesus if he's not worthy, if he's small. We we simply don't do it. We'll not be obedient to him by living our lives as living sacrifices to him, Romans 12, if, if he's small, if he's puny, if he is not sovereign. And that that's where our problem so often comes from because we can stick our fingers up at him because he's unimportant and small. And yet Hebrews want us to say that he has come with a shatteringly powerful news that he is the destroyer of the power of death. He's come to destroy it. Sin is death and destruction and separation. Yet he's come. And why is that such good news? Because we can't. 
however big and strong and powerful and significant we are in our lives, we have no power over death to avoid, ultimately, uh, or to defeat its power. It's, it's shattering news, Hebrews. Shattering. It shatters our illusions, and it shatters our self-sufficiency. But it is also wonderful news, because it points us to one who has done these things on our behalf. It's great news. So we, we, we only enjoy the good news if we understand the context of our relationship, or our broken relationship, and our need before God, that we are under the power of death until we come to Jesus Christ. God's self-awareness is that He's announcing to us that He witnesses salvation. He's the test. He testifies to salvation. It's His salvation, and He wants us to know about that. But He also is the King of Kings. He's, he's aware at that level. In verses 5 to 9, He speaks about uh, uh, this amazing truth that God in Jesus Christ uh, became little lower than the angels. And David was speaking prophetically, probably beyond his knowledge in these Psalms. Uh, but then he is crowned with glory and honor and everything is put under his feet. And uh, we have this amazing... Remember last week, if you remember, uh, in the previous chapter, it talked about all things. All things. Not just some things. Not just things on a Sunday morning. Not just the little bits of our lives, but all things being under his sovereign care. Well, he does the same. He repeats it, but this time he uses the word everything. Everything. In... Uh, the verse, verse 8, he says, quoting Psalm 2, put everything under his feet, Psalm 8, and then in putting everything under him. And then in verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it's fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists. So we've got this repetition of everything, not just some things, but everything is under his lordship. As prophetically David speaks about that, and now as, the, as God in Hebrews uh, through the writer to the Hebrews, uh, makes this astonishing claim that Jesus Christ is the life source of this universe, of everything, of everything, that He is this King of kings who's ascended uh, because of His amazing work on the cross, uh, that He has been placed in this, this amazing seat of authority and exclusive uh, sovereignty. And it's... I don't know if paradoxical is the right word to use. I don't think it is. I'm not very good sometimes with words. But sometimes there's two things that are interesting here. One is that um, we, we're not the product of a meaningless, impersonal universe. Um, we're not some chance coming together of atoms, which is, makes us very meaningless and very insignificant. But at the same time, we are not lords of this universe, which sometimes we think, and masters of our own destiny. We are certainly not insignificant, because I will go in and see how much we are loved by God, and how much He's done for us, and how much we uh, become joint heirs with Him. But there's a, there's a kind of interesting paradox. That if, if we don't believe anything, then we're insignificant. If we believe we are sovereign and in control of our own lives, then that's also crazy because it makes us much more important than we are. But if we understand who Christ is, then we bow down and worship. Not because we're insignificant, but because we recognize our place in the universe. That He 
is the one who is King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's sovereign over everything. Now, can we see that today? Can we see that in our lives? Can we see it around us? Well, the answer is no, we can't. You go outside, there's no evidence that Jesus is sovereign over everything. Isn't that right? You can't see it. But the Bible reminds us of that because in verse 8 it says, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. So the Bible says, okay, that I, this, you need to believe this by faith because I'm, God is saying everything's subject to me, but you don't see it that way just now. And the Bible's helping us to understand that, that that's exactly okay to understand that. When you look outside, you say, well, it doesn't seem that God is sovereign over everything. And the Bible here says, well, that's exactly right. But what do we see? We see Jesus crucified and risen. Okay, so he says, we don't see everything yet subject to him, but we do see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we do see the Gospels. And we do see Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we do see that as history and as reality. And we do see that he died. And we do see that he was raised again. We do see that he ascended after 40 days. We see and know and understand these things. And they tell us who Jesus Christ is. And that is what this, the testimony of the Gospels and the Bible is all about. He is, as he goes on to say here, in verse 17, a faithful high priest in the service of God. So we see Jesus, and we see Jesus as a faithful high priest. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you to do something over the course of this study. Read Leviticus. I hope you can do that at some point. And if you can't read all of Leviticus, read Leviticus uh, chapter 16, because that will tell you about the high priest and his duties. And we'll look at that in the city group on Wednesday. You'll have got your city group questions with the bulletin, and uh, that'll help you uh, to understand a little bit more about the high priest. We don't really have time to go into that just now. But Christ is the one who comes to make, as we're told here, atonement for the sins of the people. We're alienated from God. We are guilty before God. And yet the full drama of God's salvation is played out in the human arena. For God takes on, God the Son takes on human flesh. He becomes a, a, a brother. He becomes a person, as we're told here. He becomes part of the family of humanity in order to redeem us from our sins. A death on the cross where God's just wrath, just wrath against sin is appeased, is turned away. He pays for our wrongdoing divinely. The check is a divine check signed in blood. His lifeblood. Because without the, remission, without the uh, taking of life, there is no remission of sins. Life for life. And his divine blood is the cost that sets us free. Sin is put out of sight for all who trust in Jesus. The atonement covers, it appeases. It makes us right with God. The power of death 
is broken because Jesus, in his glorious strength, paid that price and broke its power by rising on the third day so that all of us who trust in him will also rise uh, to life everlasting. And this high priest who makes atonement is a high priest who was made perfect, as we're told in verse 10, made perfect through suffering. Now, can I just spend a minute on this? Because some people look at that and say, what? Was Jesus not perfect? Did he have to become perfect? Did he need to be forgiven for things he'd done wrong? When it says he, be, he was made perfect? No, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't morally mean that he had to become perfect enough in order to be the Savior, but rather that through doing what he did, he fulfilled the purpose for which he came and perfected what he'd come to do. For example, you could build, well, maybe you couldn't, and I certainly couldn't, but someone might build, James Bond's designer, might build a car completely to work underwater, to drive underwater. It might be perfectly designed, no flaw in it whatsoever. But you would only you would only stamp the perfect stamp of approval on it when it had actually done what it claimed to do and worked underwater and come up the other side. So it might be perfect in its, in its makeup, but you would only give it that kind of seal of approve, perfect perfection approval when it had done what it, what it claimed to do. And Jesus, in doing what he did, in resisting temptation in the desert and not giving in to the devil, by obeying throughout his life perfectly, loving the Father and loving one another, uh, his fellow human beings, uh, by suffering uh, on the cross, he becomes what's called here the author of our salvation. That, a, a more modern word for that would be the trailblazer. He becomes the trailblazer for salvation. He becomes the one who has knocked down the dividing walls of separation between ourselves and God and who opened up the way so that when we follow him as our trailblazer, because he's the perfect substitute, we also will know eternal life. And you know the greatest thing it says, about, well, sorry, I shouldn't say the greatest thing, that's making a value judgment. But what I mean is, one of the most encouraging things he says here about Jesus is in verses 10 to 14. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us as Christians. That is a magnificent statement. Amidst this high and mighty and beautiful and glorious declaration of who Jesus is, we are told that Jesus is not ashamed to call us family when we put our trust in him. And that is a great comfort and a strength. This section 10 to 14 is a beautiful section about belonging to God's family. Family being so significant in God's eye and and God's understanding of uh, salvation. You know, we we, we personalize it and individualize it so much in the West, in our individualistic consumerist society, which it must be individualized. We must take them personally. But there's this great family element, this great corporate element. We're the body of Christ. We're the people of God. We're the family of Christ. And we belong to Him because family matters to God greatly eternally. We, we, you'll not have individual suites in heaven. It'll not be like that. It'll be family, however glorious. And I don't mean to be trite by saying that, but if you know what I mean. He's not ashamed to call us family. Christ, you see, we're told here, what, what's so great about this? He shares our humanity, doesn't he? He doesn't 
He can't. It's impossible for him to point a finger from heaven and say, that's everything's okay. He couldn't just do it from heaven. He couldn't save us. He had to take this unique and incredible step of sacrifice in emptying himself and taking on, hum- becoming, sharing our humanity. And in so doing, became the most human being ever. There was no one more human than Jesus, more perfectly human. So when we want to see the perfect human being, see Jesus Christ. I've been asked to speak in a couple, a few weeks at St. Cath's at their men's breakfast about what it means to be a man and a Christian. And I can't think of anywhere better to go than Jesus. He's a real man, but he's a real Christian. Or, you know what I mean. Uh, he's a real example to us of what a, a Christian man uh, should be. He was the, he's the perfect example for us. And he comes into our broken family of humanity to take us into his perfect one. That's what salvation is about. But through destroying death, taking us into, that we have this eternal family to which we belong now. He's not ashamed of us. So, are you thrilled by that today as a Christian? You should be. I think we should be. I think you should stop and take a few minutes to think about that. Because we spend a lot of our lives being ashamed of ourselves. And he says, I'm not ashamed of you. Because of what Jesus has done on you. I love you. And our identity is in Jesus Christ. And our confidence is in Jesus Christ. And our gratitude is in Jesus Christ. Because he's, he's the incomparable Christ is not ashamed of you today as a Christian. He's not looking at you and saying, well, I think I made a mistake with this one. I think I'll start again with someone else. They're a disgrace. They're an embarrassment. It's not like that. He doesn't think the way we think. He's not ashamed of us because he sees his beautiful son and his perfect righteousness. Sin causes so much shame in our lives. And you may be coming today with a heap of sin or a heap of shame. And you're wondering how to carry on. price has been paid. Don't allow Satan to, to keep you in a, a wallowing in a vat of muddy guilt and shame. Because you've been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we are therefore to delight in him. And delight in obeying him and hating the ugliness of what sin is and seeing things more clearly. And ourselves not being ashamed of Jesus. And some of you will be starting a new life here in this next few weeks. And you may be Christians, you may be young Christians. You'll be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus because maybe you can't find anyone else who believes. And because it's, it's the done thing to have a good uh, poke at Christians and have a laugh at being a Christian. Don't, don't be ashamed of him. I know it's hard and I know... You might have, been, might have been in the ministry for 23 years and this temptation is still to be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed because he is not ashamed of us. Very briefly, can I just say a little bit about God's us-awareness? We've seen God's self-awareness as he explains who he is. But then in his incomparable supremacy, he also knows how to speak into your life and into mine. And he says a couple of things. The first thing he says is, don't neglect me. It's, it's interesting, I know, and, and I don't think this is just part of our cultural baggage, but it is so interesting that a lot of what God says about us is framed in the negative. 
I think he does know, he's very honest and he knows our hearts. He knows where to take us, but he also knows what we're like. And so he says, don't, please don't be, don't neglect. Verse 1, we pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Don't neglect, he says, what we've heard. And pay attention to what, it's a great salvation. We've got a great saviour. Uh, our sin is being dealt with. We can be forgiven. We are forgiven and we can know newness and transformation. And however unlikely it feels today because we can't see everything subject to him, believe it. Believe it that this life will soon pass and you will see clearly, yes, everything is subject to him. It was worth it. This suffering and struggling that I'm going through did pass. See the Bible. Listen to God. Look around spiritually. Consider your own mortality, and I I must consider mine. Know that truth will prevail. Remember that Jesus Christ, as he's revealed, is real and objective. Don't simply simply, uh, rely on your feelings. Feelings are hugely important. They're a massive part of our lives. But don't say, because I don't feel him, it's not real. Because he doesn't seem to be answering, he isn't answering. Because it isn't, doesn't look like everything's subject to him. It isn't. Take his truth. That's why the truth matters so much. It's not just kind of theoretical theology for people uh, to, to ponder over as if it might or might not be pretty and good and nice. It's absolutely founded in, in reality that we need to believe what we can't see. Because the Old Testament, we'll go and see in Hebrews there, uh, later on in Hebrews, that uh, Hebrews 11 is the great chapter of faith that people, they didn't see it, but they believed. And we have seen so much more and we're asked to believe. Take that gift. So he says, don't uh, neglect, don't neglect your Christian life. God's saying that because he knows the temptation. He also says, don't drift. Don't drift because again, he knows Well, he certainly knows my heart. Pay more careful attention. Don't neglect it so that we will not drift away. Isn't that such an accurate assessment of what we are like in our Christian lives? It's not that we kind of stand up and announce to the world, well, now I'm an atheist and I'm going my own way and I hate everything. It doesn't really work like that. We usually drift away, don't we? Quietly. Just drift like a boat that's lost its mooring bobbling on the water, away on the, t- on the waves, unnoticed. It's not usually a huge, dramatic falling away from Christ. It's not that we one day suddenly decide, Christ's miserable, and I would rather just live my own. It's almost always an intangible, gradual letting go, drifting away. No earthquakes, no lightning, just drifting from his love. Life goes on. We're not hit by, by God. He doesn't zap us. He doesn't stop us in our tracks. We simply drift from him. We lose our vision. Our Bible becomes more and more closed. Our prayer becomes less and less significant in our lives. Our church and worship and involvement in God's people becomes secondary and then thirdly and then fourthly because community of God's people doesn't matter. Our service is unnoticed unspoken doesn't happen. 
They are Satan's most powerful tactics, drifting from him. And we can drift and look like we're Christian all our lives, but internally be drifting further and further away, becoming harder in our hearts and less interested in this glorious Savior whom uh, we are to worship. How do we not drift keeping hold of the moorings. Remember, I used that illustration before about not, you don't moor a boat to a boat because both might drift. You moor yourself to something unmovable. And the unmovable person is that rock, is God, is Jesus. Speak to him. Uh, protect your moorings. Work at it. Don't rely on other people. You need to do it yourself. You have this solemn responsibility as a child of God as a brother, as a sister of Jesus Christ, you have that amazing privilege that we've seen before, joint heir with Christ. I just don't have time to go into it. To take hold of Jesus, to not drift, to rely on and, and that brings us to the very last verse, because it's all encouraging. You might think, oh, he's harsh, it's difficult, it's a problem. But listen, he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. That's the picture we're left with in this chapter. A Christ who wants to help. What's your Christ like? Is he, is he one who doesn't help you? Do you think you have to earn your help from him? He wants, he has come he, with his children. He's destroyed the power of death. He wants to help us. He's suffered and been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin because he wants to help. It's such an important last verse that gives perspective to this whole chapter. You struggle in your Christian life. Who isn't? But are we, are we going to him who helps so that we will not drift? I can't stop you drifting. I can't stop myself drifting. I need to rely on the rock I need to go to him because I, he loves me and because he knows me and because he's my father and my brother in all the mystery of God's paradoxical providences using these pictures. He's the one who provides. And he said, I haven't left you alone. You're not an orphan in this family. I've given you my Holy Spirit to indwell you, to teach and to lead and to inspire and to encourage and to enable and to transform our lives. Go to him for help. At that level, be a self-help Christian. Go to him for salvation if you're not a Christian because he wants to redeem you. And he has done this amazing thing and he's told you this amazing good news because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Go to him. And if, if I died and the only thing I'd done was point people to Jesus, then that would be worth it. Because he's the only one who can do anything. And all the rest is just hot air. Everything else that we do is hot air if it doesn't point us to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one who alone can help us to live, to defeat death, to honor and glorify him and serve him. I want this to be a serving place. Not out of duty, not because we have a rota, not because it's what you do in churches, but because he is worthy. And I want that to be the, the core of your young lives as young people here. You are serving, serving people. 
they will serve Jesus Christ because he is worth it. And there's, there's nobody else worth serving, but he is the one who is worth giving your life to in service because he will enable us to live life to the full and know the defeat of death and eternal life with him. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to understand that your book is brutally honest and uh, your rescue is not all a bed of roses. It's not just about living a better life or having a spiritual dimension that, that might make us more complete. It is absolutely more crucial than that exposing our desperate need and our spiritual depravity and death until we find our life and hope in Him. And may we find that and know that today. And may your grace and your love and your help transform our idea of you uh, so that we can worship you in a right way, worship you from our very the core of our being out and so that it's not just a surface thing, it's not just a Sunday thing, it's not just a ritual thing, but it's a life thing. Lord, help us to do that, and all we can uh, do is by understanding your greatness more. It's not that we make the gospel and uh, the good news of grace too big, it's that we make it far too small, and that's why we sin and let you down, and grieve you, and become selfish and self-centered. So, Lord, help us to have a great gospel, because you're a great God. And help us to sing praise in a great way as we close our worship, recognizing even in the words uh, some of the truth from this chapter. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.